Welcome to Bandcamp. I'm Jennifer. And I'm Dan, and this is a podcast where we read a banned book and try to figure out why it was banned in the first place. Listen, let's uh, this last two chapters. Real downer, real downer. Come on, rile, rile up. Come on, let's go, let's go, let's go. Get it together. Come on, let's. Okay, what, what, let's. What is this chapter about? Probably the trial. Things are going to get worse. I mean, we almost had a lynch mob in the last one. All right, let's go. So let's, let's rally. See let's see what horrors await <laughs> in chapter 16. Here we go. Jem heard me. He thrust his head around the connecting door. As he came to my bed, Atticus's light flashed on. We stayed where we were until it went off. We heard him turn over, and we waited until he was still again. Jem took me to his room and put me in bed beside him. Try to go to sleep, he said. It'll be all over after tomorrow, maybe. We had come in quietly, so as not to wake Auntie. Atticus killed the engine in the driveway and coasted to the car house. We went in the back door and to our rooms without a word. I was very tired and was drifting into sleep when the memory of Atticus calmly folding his newspaper and pushing back his hat became Atticus standing in the middle of an empty waiting street, pushing up his glasses. Perfect way to start. I'm not already confused. Am I supposed to know what that means? Is it is just she, me? Is she having a dream? Because that is what happened. That was the scene. An empty waiting street pushing up his glasses. I think she's dreaming because that mm. isn't that what happened when the mob was there and he stood up? Like she described everything sounded exactly like that, except the street was not empty. It was full of a lynch mob with a bunch of idiots. The full meaning of the night's events hit me, and I began crying. Jem was awfully nice about it. For once, he didn't remind me that people nearly nine years old didn't do things like that. Everybody's appetite was delicate this morning, except Jem's. He ate his way through three eggs. Atticus watched in frank admiration. Aunt Alexandra sipped coffee and radiated waves of disapproval. <laughs> Children who slipped out at night were a disgrace to the family. Atticus said he was right glad his disgraces had come along, but Auntie said, Nonsense. Mr. Underwood was there all the time. You know, it's a funny thing about Braxton, said Atticus. He despises Negroes, won't have one near him. Local opinion held Mr. Underwood to be an intense, profane little man, whose father in a fae fit of humor christened Braxton Bragg a name Mr. Underwood had done his best to live down. His, his real name is Braxton Bragg? Or is his name Braxton Bragg Underwood? Braxton Bragg. I like that name. Nothing wrong with that. Braxton Bragg Underwood. Huh, good stuff. Atticus said naming people after Confederate generals made slow, steady drinkers. Hold is Braxton a Bragg a Confederate general? Because I, I will don't... edit that out. I will <laughs> not be recorded saying I'm a fond... Okay, let's see. Braxton? I, I guess I don't know my Confederate generals. Uh, well, I've always said I hate the name Braxton Bragg. <laughs>
Braxton Bragg was a Confederate general during the Civil War. He commanded troops in several key battles, including the Battle of Shiloh and the Battle of Chattanooga. He was often criticized for his poor leadership and decision-making, and his reputation suffered greatly as a result. You should always consult with me before opening your mouth. Then, when you talk, you always look the fool. You, like Braxton Bragg, have poor decision-making abilities. There you go. Filled in a lot of information we didn't know. Calpurnia was serving Aunt Alexandra more coffee, and she shook her head at what I thought was a pleading, winning look. You're still too little, she said. I'll tell you when you ain't. I said it might help my stomach. All right, she said, and got a cup from the sideboard. She poured one tablespoonful of coffee into it and filled the top to the brim with milk. I thanked her by sticking out my tongue at it and looked up to catch Auntie's warning frown, but she was frowning at Atticus. She waited until Calpurnia was in the kitchen. Then she said, Don't talk like that in front of them. Ugh. Talk like what? In front of whom? He asked. Like that in front of Calpurnia. You said Braxton Underwood despises Negroes right in front of her. Well, I'm sure Cal knows it. Everybody in Maycomb knows it. I was beginning to notice a subtle change in my father these days that came out when he talked with Aunt Alexandra. It was a quiet digging in, never outright irritation. There was a faint starchiness in his voice when he said, Anything fit to say at the table's fit to say in front of Calpurnia. She knows what she means to this family. Part of the family. Yeah. I don't think it's a good habit, Atticus. It encourages them. You know how they talk amongst themselves. Everything that happens in this town is out to the quarters before sundown. What? Do, what? That means that pretty soon all the black people all around are gossiping about it because that's just how they are. Okay, got it. My father put down his knife. I don't know of any law that says they can't talk. Maybe if we didn't give them so much to talk about, they'd be quiet. Absolutely. Why don't you drink your coffee, Scout? I was playing in it with the spoon. I thought Mr. Cunningham was a friend of ours. You told me a long time ago he was. He still is. But last night he wanted to hurt you. Atticus placed his fork beside his knife and pushed his plate aside. Mr. Cunningham's basically a good man, he said. He just has his blind spots along with the rest of us. Jem spoke. Don't call that a blind spot. He'd have killed you last night when we first went there. He might good. have hurt. I like yeah. Jem. Yeah. Well, this is how he raised them. Atticus raised them to say things. Say yeah. things that are true. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, Alexander's like, don't talk, don't talk, don't talk like that in front of this person or say this at all. He might have hurt me a little, Atticus conceded, but son, you'll understand folks a little better when you're older. A mob's always made up of people, no matter what. Mr. Cunningham was part of a mob last night, but he was still a man. Every mob in every little southern town is always made up of people, you know. Doesn't say much for them, does it? I'll say not, said Jem. So it took an eight-year-old child to bring him to their senses, didn't it, said Atticus. That proves something, that a gang of wild animals can be stopped, simply because they're still human. Hmm, maybe we need a police force of children. You children last night made Walter Cunningham stand in my shoes for a minute. That was enough. Plus, I kicked that one guy in the gonads, didn't I, Atticus? Be quiet, <laughs> Scout, I'm making a point. Well, I hoped Jem would understand folks a little better when he was older. I wouldn't. 
First day Walter comes back to school will be his last, I affirmed. You will not touch him, Atticus said flatly. I don't want either of you bearing a grudge about this, no matter what happens. You see, don't you, said Aunt Alexandra, what comes of things like this? Don't say I haven't told you. Shut up, you old bat. Atticus said he'd never say that, pushed out his chair and got up. There's a day ahead, so excuse me, Jem. I don't want you and Scout downtown today, please. As Atticus departed, Dill came bounding down the hall into the dining room. It's all over town this morning, he announced. All about how we held off a hundred folks with our bare hands, <laughs> we... Dill. <laughs> Aunt Alexandra stared him to silence. It was not a hundred folks, she said, and nobody held anybody off. It was just a nest of those Cunninghams, drunk and disorderly. Ah, Auntie, that's just Dill's way, said Jem. He signaled us to follow him. You all stay in the yard today, she said, as we made our way to the front porch. It was like Saturday. People from the south end of the county passed our house in a leisurely but steady stream. Mr. Dolphus Raymond lurched by on his thoroughbred. Don't see how he stays in that saddle, murmured Jem. How can you stand to get drunk for eight in the morning? A wagon load of ladies rattled past us. They wore cotton sunbonnets and dresses with long sleeves. A bearded man in a wool hat drove them. Yonder's some Mennonites, Jem said to Dill. They don't have buttons. They lived deep in the woods, did most of their trading across the river, and rarely came to make home. Dill was interested. They've all got blue eyes, Jem explained, and the men can't shave after they marry. Their wives like for him to tickle him with their beards. Ah! <laughs> Mr. X. Billups rode by on a mule and waved to us. He's a funny man, said Jem. X is his name, not his initial. He was in court one time, and they asked him his name. He said X. Billups. Clerk asked him to spell it, and he said X. <laughs> asked him again, and he said X. <laughs> They kept it at it till he wrote X on a sheet of paper and held it up for everybody to see. They asked him where he got his name, and he said that's the way his folks signed him up when he was born. As the county went by us, Jem gave... Oh, that must be a point about how illiterate a lot of people still are, maybe? Well, right. I mean, you know that, right? Like the old way yeah, people yeah. used to sign their names. They probably said, here, sign his birth certificate. Oops. <laughs> how did they do it? Oops. And I'm not, now that made me sound like I'm making fun of them for being illiterate and I'm not. It's just like when I, listen, when I'm going to imitate somebody signing with an X, it's coming out. What's your name? X. As the county went by us, Jem gave Dill the histories and general attitudes of the more prominent figures. Mr. Tensa Jones voted the straight prohibition ticket. Miss Emily Davis dipped snuff in private. Mr. Byron Waller could play the violin. Mr. Jake Slade was cutting his third set of teeth. <laughs> what in the hell? A wagon load of unusually stern-faced citizens appeared. When they pointed to Miss Maudie Atkinson's yard, ablaze with summer flowers, Miss Maudie herself came out on the porch. There was an odd thing about Miss Maudie. On her porch, she was too far away for us to see her features clearly, but we could always catch her mood by the way she stood. She was now standing arms akimbo, her shoulders drooping a little, her glasses winking in the sunlight. 
We knew she wore a grin of the utmost wickedness. The driver of the wab- wabin. Wabbit. 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 The driver of the wagon slowed down his mules, and a shrill-voiced woman called out, He that cometh in vanity departeth in darkness. Oh, those are the people that don't like her being outside in her garden. She oh, should my. be inside <laughs> reading her Bible. Wagon loads of people pull up while she's gardening and start yelling stuff at her? I guess so. They really don't like her Jeez. or her flowers. God. Miss Maudie answered, A merry heart maketh a cheerful countenance. I guess that the foot washers thought that the devil was quoting scripture for his own purposes as the driver speeded his mules. Get Why away, they... she's Satan. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Why they objected to Miss Maudie's yard was a mystery, heightened in my mind because for someone who spent all the daylight hours outdoors, Miss Maudie's command of scripture was formidable. You come into court this morning, asked Jem. We had strolled over. I am not, she said. I have no business with the court this morning. Aren't you going down to watch, asked Dill. I am not. It's morbid watching a poor devil on trial for his life. Look at all those folks. It's like a Roman carnival. They have to try him in public, Miss Maudie, I said. Wouldn't be right if they didn't. I'm quite aware of that, she said. Just because it's public, I don't have to go, do I? Miss Stephanie Crawford came by. She wore a hat and gloves. Um, 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 she said. Look at all those folks. You'd think William Jennings Bryan was speaking. And where are you going, Stephanie, inquired Miss Maudie. To the Jitney Jungle. Okay, Miss- we're looking up Jitney Jungle because... You every- really want to know what that is. Well, it sounds it's like just, a fun place. It really does sound like a bouncy house or something. <laughs> Sorry to burst your bouncy house bubble. Jitney Jungle was just a supermarket chain that operated primarily in the southeastern United States during the 20th century. So it's a real place. I guarantee, though, Miss Stephanie, she's not going to the jungle. Of course not. She just didn't want to seem like what she is. Again, people don't like to be called what they are. That's right. town gossip. Miss Maudie said she'd never seen Miss Stephanie go to the Jitney Jungle in a hat in her life. Well, said Miss Stephanie... I thought I might just look in at the courthouse to see what Atticus is up to. Mm-hmm. Better be careful he doesn't hand you a subpoena. We asked Miss Maudie to elucidate. She said Miss Stephanie seemed to know so much about the case, she might as well be called in to testify. We held off until noon when Atticus came home to dinner and said they'd spent the morning picking the jury. After dinner, we stopped by for Dill and went to town. It was a gala occasion. There was no room at the public hitching rail for another animal. Mules and wagons were parked under every available tree. Why, why are they acting like this is a singular incident? Oh, because it doesn't happen to Maycomb, according it to It doesn't, yes. Yeah. This is a big deal in town. The courthouse square was covered with picnic parties sitting on newspapers, washing down biscuit and syrup with warm milk from fruit jars. I know that's what people do, but it isn't truly barbaric. Maudie is not wrong. Yeah, it's disgusting. So I'm glad Miss Maudie is sticking to being a good person and not wanting any part of it. Some people were gnawing on cold chicken and cold fried pork chops. The more affluent chased their food with drugstore Coca-Cola in bulb-shaped soda glasses. Greasy-faced children popped the whip through the crowd, and babies lunched on their mother's breasts. Oh, did they do that publicly in 1930s? I mean, I'm happy they did, but then we like went through this whole period where 
<laughs> you weren't supposed to do that. <laughs> You're not supposed to do it today. No one knows what breasts are. We've never seen them before. <laughs> in a far corner of the square, the Negro sat quietly in the sun, dining on sardines, crackers, and the more vivid flavors of knee-high cola. Mr. Dolphus Raymond sat with them. Jem, said Dill, he's drinking out of a sack. Mr. Dolphus Raymond seemed to be doing so. Two yellow drugstore straws ran from his mouth to the depth of a brown paper bag. Ain't ever seen anybody do that, murmured Dill. How does he keep what's in it in it? Jem giggled. He's got a Coca-Cola bottle full of whiskey in there. How do you know, Jem? That's what right. Did, what did Dill tell you? <laughs> I have a feeling Dill would know what's going on here, but not Jem. <laughs> That's so's not to upset the lady, ladies. Ladies. <laughs> That's what the labias. That's what they used to call them. It's so bad back then. The labia. What if it was that demeaning? Look at that group of labias. <laughs> oh my god. I think I need a sip of water <laughs> before I make more of these mistakes. Where was I? That's so not to upset the ladies. You'll see him sip it all afternoon. He'll step out for a while and fill it back up. Why is he sitting with the colored folks? Always does. He likes him better and he likes us, I reckon. Lives by himself way down near the county line. He's got a colored woman and all sorts of mixed chillin'. Show you some of them if we see him. He doesn't look like trash, said Dill. He's not. He owns all one side of the riverbank down there, and he's from a real old family to boot. Then why does he do like that? These are good questions, and I hope the kids get the right answers on this. <laughs> I hope they're not solely <laughs> depending on Dill. That's just his way, said Jem. They say he never got over his wedding. He was supposed to marry one of the Spencer ladies, I think. They were going to have a huge wedding, but they didn't. After the rehearsal, the bride went upstairs and blew her head off. Shotgun. She pulled the trigger with her toes. Hmm, suspicious. Did they ever know why? No, said Jem. Nobody ever knew quite why, but Mr. Dolphus. They said it was because she found out about his colored woman. He reckoned he could keep her and get married, too. He's been sort of drunk ever since. You know, though, he's real good to those chillin'. I, I don't like to say chillin'. Why not? I just, I just don't like it. I don't know. Jem, I asked, what's a mixed child? Half white, half colored. You've seen him, Scout. You know, that red, kinky-headed one that delivers for the drugstore. He's half white. They're real sad. How come? They don't belong anywhere. Colored folks won't have them because they're half white. White folks won't have them because they're colored. So they're just in-betweens. Don't belong anywhere. But Mr. Dolphus now, they say he's shipped two of his up north. They don't mind him up north. Yonder's one of them. A small boy clutching a Negro woman's hand walked towards us. He looked all Negro to me. He was rich chocolate with flowering nostrils and beautiful teeth. Sometimes he would skip happily, and the Negro woman tugged his hand to make him stop. Oh, that's sad. Oh, it's so sad. That really hurts. Jem waited until they passed us. That's one of the little ones, he said. How can you tell, us, Dill? He looked black to me. You can't sometimes, not unless you know who they are. 
but he's half Raymond, all right. But how can you tell? I asked. I told you, Scout, you just have to know who they are. Well, how do you know we ain't Negroes? Uncle Jack Finch says we really don't know. He says as far as he can trace back, the Finches we ain't. But for all he knows, we might have come straight out of Ethiopia during the Old Testament. That's what I thought, said Jem. But around here, once you have a drop of Negro blood, that makes you all black. Hey, look, I bet a lot of people don't want this to be talked about. But it's so, it's, it, it, this is just how things were and still are to an extent. Some invisible signal had made the lunchers on the square rise and scatter bits of newspaper, cellophane, and wrapping paper. Children came to their mothers. Babies were cradled on hips as men in sweat-stained hats collected their families and herded them through the courthouse doors. In the far corner of the square, the Negroes and Mr. Dolphus Raymond stood up and dusted their breeches. There were few women and children among them, which seemed to dispel the holiday mood. They waited patiently at the doors behind the white families. Let's go in, said Dill. Nah, we better wait till they get in. Atticus might not like it if he sees us, said well, didn't Jan. Atticus tell you not to come down tomorrow? <laughs> That's exactly right. The Maycomb County Courthouse was faintly reminiscent of Arlington in one respect. The concrete pillars supporting its south roof were too heavy for their light burden. The pillars were all that remained standing when the original courthouse burned in 1856. Another courthouse was built around them. It is better to say built in spite of them. But for the South Porch, the Maycomb County Courthouse was early Victorian, presenting an unoffensive vista when seen from the north. From the other side, however, Greek revival columns clashed with a big 19th century clock tower housing a rusty, unreliable instrument, a view indicating a people determined to preserve every physical scrap of the past. To reach the courtroom on the second floor, one passed sundry, sunless county cubbyholes, the tax assessor, the tax collector, the county clerk, the county solicitor, the circuit clerk, the judge of probate, lived in cool, dim hutches that smelled of decaying record books, mingled with old, damp cement and stale urine. Ugh. God, Harper Lee, every once in a while, she just puts in something that is just gross. Why does she have to put in toilet smell? It was necessary to turn on the lights in the daytime. There was always a film of dust on the rough floorboards. The inhabitants of these offices were creatures of their environment. Little gray-faced men, they seemed untouched by wind or sun. We knew there was a crowd, but we had not bargained for the multitudes in the first floor hallway. I got separated from Jem and Dill, but made my way toward the wall of the stairwell, knowing Jem would come for me eventually. I found myself in the middle of the Idlers Club and made myself as unobtrusive as possible. This was a group of white-shirted, khaki-trousered, suspendered old men who had spent their lives doing nothing and spent their twilight days doing same on pine benches under the live oaks on the square. Jeez. I deserve something good after reading sentences like that. <laughs> Attentive critics of the courthouse business, Atticus said they knew as much law as the Chief Justice from long years of observation. Normally, they were the court's only spectators. 
I would, I, I see myself being part of the idlers club. Yeah. I mean, they're interested in interesting things. And I do wear khakis. And suspenders. I don't wear suspenders, but have, have khakis ever been in style? The night, the 90s, right? Yeah. Are you telling me the idlers were like ahead of their time? Perhaps. Normally they were the court's only spectators. And today they seemed resentful of the interruption of their comfortable routine. When they spoke, their voices sounded casually important. The conversation was about my father. Thinks he knows what he's doing, one said. Oh, now, I wouldn't say that, said another. Atticus Finch's a deep reader, a mighty deep reader. He reads all right. That's all he does. The club snickered. Let me tell you something now, Billy, a third said. You know the court appointed him to defend this N-word. Yeah, but Atticus aims to defend him. That's what I don't like about it. This was news, news that put a different light on things. Atticus had to, whether he wanted or not. I thought it odd that he hadn't said anything to us about it. We could have used it many times in defending him ourselves. He had to, that's why he was doing it. Equaled fewer fights and less fussing. But did that explain the town's attitude? The court appointed Atticus to defend him. Atticus aimed to defend him. That's what they didn't like about it. It was confusing. The Negroes, having waited for the white people to go upstairs, began to come in. Whoa, now, just a minute, said a club member, holding up his walking stick. Don't, just don't start up them their stairs yet a while. Okay, so you still like these guys? No, I don't like these guys. <laughs> I don't like these old racist khaki-wearing uh, adults. I would be the one idler club member who would stand up and say, let the black people go. What the hell are you doing, you old white idiot? The club began its stiff-jointed climb and ran into Dill and Jem on their way down looking for me. They squeezed past and Jem called, Scout, come on, there ain't a seat left. We'll have to stand up. Look there now, he said irritably as the black people surged upstairs. The old men ahead of them would take most of the standing room. We were out of luck and it was my fault, Jem informed me. We stood miserably by the wall. Can't you all get in? Reverend Sykes was looking down at us, black hat in hand. Hey, Reverend, said Jem. Nah, Scout here messed us up. Well, let's see what we can do. Reverend Sykes edged his way upstairs. In a few moments, he was back. There's not a seat downstairs. Do you all reckon it'll be all right if you all came to the balcony with me? Gosh, yes, said Jem. Happily, we sped ahead of Reverend Sykes to the courtroom floor. We went up a covered staircase and waited at the door. Reverend Sykes came puffing behind us and steered us gently through the black people in the balcony. Four Negroes rose and gave us their front row seats. The colored balcony ran along three walls of the courtroom like a second-story veranda, and from it we could see everything. The jury sat to the left, under long windows, sunburned, lanky. They seemed to be all farmers, but this was natural. Town folk rarely sat on juries. They were either struck or excused. One or two of the jury looked vaguely like dressed-up Cunninghams. At this stage, they sat straight and alert. It doesn't sound like a very fair jury. It does not. I mean, the entire system seemed actually rigged back then, right? I mean, back then, but it's still pretty exclusionary today. 
No, I don't know why it reminded me of this. The white rich folk would be excused, it said, from the jury. Uh-huh. Yeah. I don't know why I'm thinking kinda... of, I don't know why I'm thinking about this, but do you remember when the the vaccine was just rolling out and it was really hard to get? And yeah. It was almost like well, well, it was a lottery. But do you remember the times when like you'd hear stories? I mean, so I lived in Florida at the time and I'd hear stories about all the rich people from Palm Beach flying to different states and taking poor communities vaccines because it was all paid for. Like I remember Texas, for example, people from Palm Beach, rich connected people would get on their private jet and fly to a poor community in Texas and they would just get the vaccines because somebody oh. knew somebody. And I don't know why I'm thinking about that now. In, in so many ways, our, our society has just, it does not change. And it's just yeah. so friggin' frustrating. Yeah. I, I don't like that either. I, it's supposed to be everyone's equal, but obviously that's not true. And the jury system, I, I think that rich people can get out of it or excused from it. And I don't think juries are that fair. I mean, when I just had my second kid, I had a one-year-old and a newborn. And I'm like, what am I supposed to do with my kids? I was called to jury duty and I was, well, I can't come because I have kids. And a lot of people are like that. They can't come because they have kids and $10 a day isn't going to cut it. You yeah. know, if you need to find childcare. So juries aren't representative. Yeah. You know, why shouldn't moms be on juries or working parents or working people for that matter? Yeah. It's like, kind of wonder who who is on juries. Wow. Know? That is a really crazy thought. Yep. The circuit solicitor and another man, Atticus and Tom Robinson, sat at tables with their backs to us. There was a brown book and some yellow tablets on the solicitor's table. Atticus's was bare. Just inside the railing that divided the spectators from the court, the witnesses sat on cowhide bottom chairs. Their backs were to us. Judge Taylor looked like most judges I had ever seen. Amiable, white-haired, slightly ruddy-faced, he was a man who ran his court with an alarming informality. He sometimes propped his feet up. He often cleaned his fingernails with his pocket knife. What? Yeah. That's gross. The judge did and this long... during the thing. Mm -hmm. I ever tell you about a buddy of mine who I used to work with who um, I'd come into his office. He's in there picking his ears ah. with an unfolded paper clip. Ah. And as I walk in, he pulls out a milk dud out of his ear. Oh, God. Earwax. No. And I went, Gary, so what are you doing? Oh. You're not supposed to put in like a, a Q tip in your ear. <laughs> I'm sure you're not supposed to put a sharp piece of wire from a, a paper clip oh. in your ear. No. Maybe it was his eardrum. He like fished it out of there. <laughs> he pulled out, he smeared his entire eardrum. <laughs> he could never hear me after that. I think you're right. I'd go, Gary, Gary, and you just walk right by me. I think you're right. In long equity hearings, especially after dinner, he gave the impression of dozing. An impression dispelled forever when a lawyer once deliberately pushed a pile of books to the floor in a desperate effort to wake him up. Without opening his eyes, Judge Taylor murmured, Mr. Whitley, do that again, and it'll cost you $100. This guy's just playing games. 
He was a man learned in the law, and although he seemed to take his job casually, in reality he kept a firm grip on any proceedings that came before him. Only once was Judge Taylor ever seen at a dead standstill in open court, and the Cunningham stopped him. Old Sarum, their stomping grounds, was populated by two families, separate and apart in the beginning, but unfortunately bearing the same name. The Cunninghams married the Conninghams until the spelling of the names was academic. Academic until a Cunningham disputed a Conningham over land titles and took to the law. During a controversy of this character, James Cunningham testified that his mother spelled it Cunningham on deeds and things, but she was really a Conningham. She was an uncertain speller, a seldom reader, and was given to looking far away sometimes when she sat on the front gallery in the evening. After nine hours of listening to the eccentricities of old Sarum's inhabitants, Judge Taylor threw the case out of court. He just couldn't deal with it. When asked upon what grounds, Judge Taylor said, Champ, Champertus? Connivance? Champertus connivance is when a lawyer secretly agrees with their client to pay for the costs of a lawsuit in exchange for a share of any money the client wins. This is considered wrong and is not allowed in many places. Okay, so that just is basically a, a fancy legal term for being a shady lawyer. Got it. Thank you, robot. Champertus connivance and declared he hoped to God the litigants were satisfied by each having had their public say. They were. That was all they had wanted in the first place. Judge Taylor had one interesting habit. He permitted smoking in his courtroom, but did not himself indulge. Sometimes, if one was lucky, one had the privilege of watching him put a long, dry cigar in his mouth and munch it up slowly. Was he eating it like a candy bar? Bit by bit, the dead cigar would disappear and reappear some hours later as a flat, slick mess. Jesus Christ! Harper Lee? Its essence extracted and mingling with Judge Taylor's digestive juices. You know, the other day I was walking across my lawn and I saw a pile of what I thought was bird feathers. And it was very much like Judge Taylor's cigar. It was a bunny eaten and regurgitated by an owl. And I got to explain to my children what like an owl, what, what's the word for it? Digest. Owl digest. I gotta look this up. What is owl throw up? Uh, a pellet. Judge Taylor had a cigar pellet <laughs> as he's up there on the bench. Was that in the movie, do you think? That we have to watch To Kill a Mockingbird? We should do a duo thing with book versus movie. Yeah, let's get the Margos on this. Like a duo episode with them. <laughs> I once asked Atticus how Mrs. Taylor stood to kiss him, but Atticus said they didn't kiss much. The witness stand was to the right of Judge Taylor, and when we got to our seats, Mr. Heck Tate was already on it. End of chapter 16. It's time for PPP, Problematic Points to Ponder. What, if anything, would be considered banworthy in this chapter? The only thing is the N-word, right? That's the only thing I can think of. And what is rape, Dad? Other than those two things. <laughs> what is rape, Dad? Another children's book. <laughs> I mean, there does come a time when you have to explain that to your kids. 
it's come up with my son who's nine. He was reading this book. What was the book called? Oh, here it is. It's got a picture of Albert Einstein on the cover, which always gets me. Interesting facts for curious minds. In the book, it was talking about female condoms in Nigeria that had like a weapon embedded in them or something, like a spike in them. This is in a kid's yes. book? Yes. And so I got a twofer. What are condoms and what is rape? Mom, what is a vaginal <laughs> spike? I know, but you know, the conversation would come up one way or another. And I matter of factly answered him because, you know, he's a very- You're like Atticus He's a way. very re uh, rational kid. And I was like, I'm just going to give him the answer. And he's like, oh, okay. And you know, kids, they, they get embarrassed for some reason. So he didn't want to go on about it. But if he if he wanted to, I would have kept going. At what point, though, would, would you stop because you would be too embarrassed? <laughs> right. Hold on. Why isn't this bothering you, son? Because <laughs> I can't go on anymore. From Ben Worthy to Binge Worthy. So we've got a podcast we'd like to give a shout out to this week. It's called... The Living Scary Podcast. You can hear two siblings discuss the macabre interests of horror movies and true crime. Logan will review a horror movie and McCall will cover a true crime case that has a similar theme. So you can check out this fun show for a spooky good time. You can find them over on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube. You can come live vicariously with them. That is called Living Scary Podcast. Check them out wherever you can find podcasts. It's a really fun show. I like these guys a lot. That is it for this episode. Uh, again, we always ask this at the end. If you're enjoying the show and you can think of just one person who might enjoy it too or maybe find some value in it, I don't know. We do this just because we love doing it, but we would really appreciate it if you could share the podcast with them. Maybe, you know, share a link to your favorite episode. Uh, but, you know, first probably warn them because we're not for everyone. We're weird. Tell, tell them, like, I, I love this podcast. They're weird. And yes, I know they're talking about a book from the 60s. And of course, no one should be listening to it. But please, mom, please, brother, please, Joe, whoever you're talking to, these guys are really, really, really good. Uh, That's that really long-winded, Dan. So like, share, subscribe, as everyone says. You, you, you do kind of do a begging thing. You're like, oh, well, if you could really please just do one thing for me. If you like it, only if you like it, though. Find somebody else who might like it. I know it's a heavy lift, Jennifer. Who is going to like this? Ay, ay, ay.